Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we discuss the most interesting and compelling news in seafood. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. Woof, it has been a couple of crazy news weeks. Um, there's no way for us to avoid talking about the Norwegian salmon tax. We'll get into that in a bit. Plus, the red listing of American-caught Atlantic lobster by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program uh, warrants some discussion, as do some other points on eco-label certification. So we've got a lot to chew on. Uh, we're just going to look at those two, because otherwise we'd be on here for an hour and a half. You don't want to listen to myself and John Fiorillo for more than about 45 minutes. We know that. Uh, so, John, let's get uh, started a bit with the salmon tax. Now, uh, the Norwegian government proposed implementing a tax on what they call ground rent uh, or a, a resource tax. Now, what does that mean? We've been referring it to uh, uh, referring to it as a salmon farming industry tax, which essentially it is. What they have proposed, I mean, it will affect other industries, but what they have proposed is that beginning in the 2023 tax year, uh, for volumes above 4,000 or 5,000 metric tons, a lot of details still to be worked out, uh, there will be a 40% tax uh, on the companies. Um, but that could it could vary dramatically. So as the salmon farming companies and, and legislators have started chewing on it, um, they've realized that, um, that things could get far more complicated. Um, now, this would generate billions and billions of dollars for the uh, Norwegian government. Um, and the argument is you are using natural resources. Your salmon farms are in, uh, in Norwegian waters. And the belief is that there should be more, uh, more given back both to the municipal communities where those farms are, as well as the Norwegian uh, government. So, again... Things are moving really quickly, uh, so it's hard to know the exact revenue that would be generated. But around 350 million U.S. dollars has been kind of batted around, but it could go up or down. So anyway, it's been uh, really one of the key areas that we've covered. Um, both our sister publication, Interfish.no, uh, and DN.no, uh, our Norwegian Business Daily uh, sister publication. Um, have been spending all, all kinds of time and work uncovering every single angle of it. Now, before I get your thoughts on it, John, I'll just say this matters for a lot of different reasons, not just for Norway. So understanding it is really important um, when you pull back and think about it in a larger sense. Because there is so much work being done now on developing the blue economy, and one of the, the, the big questions about it is... A, who owns the waters where things will be farmed, and how um, how should countries tax people that are making profit off of a shared resource? So this is kind of, you know, obviously there's tax on, on uh, companies around the world already, but this puts kind of a, a, a different idea into the mix that other governments more than likely will start to look at. Uh, and Norway is a, a country seen as, um, you know, one of the leaders in sustainability, 
uh, one of the leaders on resource regulations because of its, uh, its, its production of oil. So it's viewed as a country that, um, you know, is a, is a modern Western country. And so the ideas it puts forward are looked at closely by other Western countries. So that could mean taxes on other aquaculture uh, sectors in different countries, possibly fisheries, uh, who knows? But anyway, very busy, very uh, still developing and a lot to learn and know about it, but we've been covering the heck out of it. John, what is your take on what you've, you've seen? What's jumped out to you as kind of the most consequential part of this so far? Well, I mean, there's a lot to it, as you mentioned, and I think that um, issue you just brought up, whether this is something that might spread. I talked to a couple uh, Alaska Pollock guys yesterday or the day before and um, asked them a little bit about it because um, you could foresee where in the U.S., um, you know, they, they use... Uh, they use a public resource, and um, it could something like this could could go that way. Um, I don't know. I'm just speculating. They didn't see it that way, not yet, anywhere, anyways. But I think that point you made is a good one. The other thing that struck me um, is how quickly and how concerted the industry in Norway. Now, granted, it's very tight-knit and dominated by a handful or a few more than that companies, but how quickly and concerted they responded. And, you know, they all, they all sang from the same music sheet, so to speak, and that is that we will stop our investments um, in new plants, etc., in Norway. We will also stop uh, buying... Uh, licensed biomass, uh, paying at the auctions to buy more biomass to expand the operations that they have. So they hit back with that at the government. And, you know, that's a pretty strong um, uh, counter blow because that we're talking billions in investments that have been put on hold. And, um, you know, that, that, frightens these municipalities where um, that that would one presumably benefit from the tax increase but two where all the salmon farming occurs and if there's a drawback in any way from that those municipalities stand to suffer you know however <laughs> and I mentioned to you the other day you know is this a bluff or are they serious about this because if they are serious about this, they are basically stopping their growth as companies, which I find odd. Like, I, I don't think that's what they would really want to do. They talk about taking it to other countries, you know, investing in other countries, maybe, but they got a pretty good thing in Norway already. And, it, you know, I, I would think they'd want to stay home. So how serious are they about pulling all the, you know, canceling all these investments and, and not uh, paying to buy more biomass to grow? I don't know. But at this point, I'm going to take them on their word. And um, they, you know, the, the, the threat is pretty large. I think you only get to do this one time. Yep. And yep. I, I, I don't think it's a bluff per se, 
I do think it's a real threat, but as you just said, there's no way that they will actually not invest in Norway. Um, forget it. Um, because, you know, and this is some of the rhetoric that's been um, tossed around in, in uh, Norway as well, is, well, other salmon farming company or countries will benefit instead. Well, who? Where? Um, there aren't exactly. other places to grow. Chile is not on a growth path. Uh, they've got a, a, a left-leaning president that is not going to be pro-growth anyway. Canada, um, BC is going the other way. It's contracting. Uh, Eastern Canada remains a bit of a wild card, but the sky is not the limit there. The U.S. off the table. Um, Scotland also slow, slow growing. You're not going to see rapid growth. Now, uh, people are looking at Iceland as you know a a potential sort of promised land for. Uh, salmon farming and at our seafood investor forum last week it was it is really interesting because um, already the CEOs that um, that we had on our panels um, were already already talking of the the game of that they would be investing in other places and so Iceland was kind of held up again as this place where uh, there could be growth that there could be as much production of salmon in Iceland, as there is in Norway today, just from a basic kind of practical amount of water point of view, if you follow. Um, but politically, it would be impossible in Iceland, too. Remember, they have a huge wild salmon um, uh, economy there, um, or at least it's it's powerful uh, from a lobbying point of view. Maybe it's, I mean, it's not near the economic engine that salmon farming could be. So in that sense, it's a bluff. There's no, there's no other countries that are going to grow, uh, and and there's no expansion that that people are going to shift their money into. Um, and if you say competitive, you know, out competing Norway, come on, Norway owns Canada, Norway owns Chile, for the most part, and the UK, and Iceland for that matter. So it's, uh, I think it's a, from my point of view, the coordination makes sense for how they can try to muscle. Uh, politicians and sort of try to muster people onto their side about coastal jobs. But ultimately, they will, as you say, have to have ways to grow. And Norway has to be a part of that puzzle. Or what you end up is you end up generating these, uh, the term super profits is, is used <laughs> about what they've been doing, uh, the kind of earnings they've been pulling down. You end up with these super profits, which is the whole reason that they got put in the crosshairs in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And if if we go back to that, and it's not a bluff, but it's a weak position realistically, then my mind goes to they're going to get they're going to get this forty percent tax imposed on them. Maybe they all this debate and back and forth and bluster will knock it down 5% or 10%. But if I were to bet at this very moment in time, not knowing what's coming around the corner, I would say, yeah, they're gonna, they're, they're going to face some steep tax increase come 2023. Yeah, I agree. So it's, uh, as of now, it's just kind of looking at the implications and there are many, um, one of the things from the event, 
uh, last week that was discussed was, okay, does this accelerate um, land-based salmon farming uh, production? Does this accelerate offshore aquaculture production? Um, there are reasons to think yes, but there's reasons to think no. Um, actually, the salmon farming shares, or the, the, the shares of land-based salmon farmers on the Oslo Stock Exchange actually spiked when the news came out while salmon farming uh, shares tanked dramatically. Now, I think that's maybe a, kind of an uninformed investor uh, play there because land-based salmon is still in its very, very early stages. There's no way to ramp up production uh, in, in, in rapidly in the way that uh, would be needed to, to really um, generate uh, big profits. Um, long term, I think most people agree, okay, this, this is going to work or likely to work. Offshore also poses problems because you still are going to have to pay tax to somebody as long as you're in an EEZ. Now, I don't know the complexity of that. Our, our Norwegian team is far, far more uh, educated and, and following it far, far, far more closely than we are. So it'd be great to get them on our next podcast, um, a couple of our reporters to help fill us in. But as of now... Uh, we don't really know if it's going to affect offshore uh, or how it will affect offshore, rather. We know it will. Um, now, if you look at other countries, though, there may be some possibilities now. If, if you look at offshore aquaculture, perhaps the U.S., perhaps uh, other countries where they can either get uh, further off or deeper to get the, uh, the temperatures that they need. But in general, uh, you know, I think they are going to be stuck with uh, with paying more tax, and the amount is unclear. And I don't, by any any means, think this is going to lead to unprofitable salmon farming companies. Um, no way. Uh, salmon demand's going up. The thing that they need to focus on most right now is production and figuring out how to expand production. And yeah, and if you're a buyer of uh, salmon, um, you and you read this news this week, uh, you should probably conclude that uh, farm salmon prices are not going down in the near future, especially if this tax gets imposed. But even if it doesn't, and they're true to their threat that they're not going to expand, we're already, um, you know, we already have a supply and demand situation that's uh not great for salmon that we we can't keep up with demand as you mentioned so um yeah in the market price is going to stay pretty high as far as i can tell absolutely these are big powerful companies they're going to figure out how to get their margins one, one way or another so let's move on to the next topic uh now since the last time we, we talked, uh, there has been a lot of interesting developments on the sustainability and eco-label front. Um, prompted at least the, the most recent news that, that prompted some of the new attention on this uh, was the Monterey Bay Aquarium's Seafood Watch program uh, red-listing American caught Atlantic lobster as part of its uh, traffic light rating system. So they label things... Um, you know, avoid or good choice, and they uh, give them colors like a traffic light: red, green, yellow. So um, now they decided, uh, based on um, issues, concerns with the northern right whale 
that uh, that the gear used by uh, by Maine lobster lobstermen and women um, poses a risk to entangling uh, entangling mammals uh, and the right whales in particular. So uh, the backlash was swift, uh, both from obviously the lobster industry, also buyers. Uh, also uh, politicians um, and the, the basic argument was look we the science does not support this decision and they were able to kind of um, point to a lot of research they had that this this was not an issue in the Gulf of Maine uh, where in, uh, I believe it's called area one where the majority of the um, of the the, the, the uh, lobster are, are harvested um, but uh, that hasn't really hold, held water, um, you know, with, uh, with the Monterey Bay Aquarium who stood pretty firm on it. Um, and you know, but I will also say, and we'll talk about this, uh, as well, uh, the, the lobster fishery, the Gulf of Maine lobster fishery is certified to the Marine Stewardship Council, which is far and away the most well-known and respected, uh, certification uh, body for fisheries. So it's created this really weird, interesting um, uh, sort of uh, dissonance between certification and these types of rating systems. Um, John, uh, boy, we've been covering certification and eco labels for a long, 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 long time. Uh, is this one any different than some of the past scandals? Uh, I think I think it could be. Um, obviously, you mentioned the swift response, and now we have the. Uh, Maine congressional, U.S. congressional delegation uh, saying they're going to introduce a bill to basically stop any federal tax money, any funding from going to uh, Marine Stewards or Monterey Bay Aquarium. Sorry. Now they've they've given, according to the con congressional uh, delegation, uh, Monterey's received uh, like almost 200 million over the last 20 years from the government. I, I'm assuming in grants and stuff, we're kind of looking into that and trying to understand what type of money they're getting and how they're getting it. So, you know, it's not a ton of money per year. And um, so I don't know how concerned they are with that. In fact, they responded quickly and basically said, Hey, whatever, we're still, we're still leaving it on the red list and you know, you can have at it. So let's keep in mind though, that there is a problem with right whales. They are endangered. There's literally a few hundred of them, not millions of them. And they don't have a lot, they're, they're, they're big animals. So they don't have a lot of babies every year. They have you know, handfuls at most. And so losing these whales, you know, you, you could get into a serious situation where, well, they're endangered. So you know what the next step is. That said, um, you know, there's plenty of debate as to whether they're getting uh, it's Canada uh, lobstermen's fault. It's Maine lobstermen's fault. Whose fault is it? Um, you know, that, that is where we are now and we're trying to work our way through that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't see Monterey backing down at all. And, 
you know, the whole eco labels landscape, we talked about it in a couple stories this week and some columns and I don't know. I just feel it's out of control more than ever before. We've got the ASC and the um, GSA, which uh, they have programs to certify aquaculture products primarily. We've got them now with dueling marketing campaigns in the U.S. to draw awareness to their labels among U.S. consumers. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. They're going to spend millions of dollars on this. All the labels need to be blended together. Yes, that's a challenge, and, you know, there are are a lot of issues, but come on, it's not impossible. It's not like we're you know, reinventing earth, it, it, it really deserves a serious discussion. And, um, I think sooner rather than later. And I think if you go ask any buyers out there, they would, they would agree, uh, because they're just, just keeping up with these and the paperwork and all the decisions that go into, you know, labeling products with these. Um, it's, it's a lot. And I, I hate to say it, I have not seen any true, true evidence that consumers are running into Safeway and going, I want MSC certified cod. No, it's not happening. And even less with ASC's label and uh, GSA's uh, label, which is uh, acronym BAP. So, yeah, I think I think we got bigger issues here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, let's not forget that the efforts to kind of differentiate these eco labels come against um, a complete lack of standardization of any other logos you might want to put on there. And if you put a blue fish on a package that says wild caught, which I've seen, or, um, you know, from the ocean or whatever you want to put on there, or, uh, you know, whatever, our sustainable promise and you know, whatever it might be, there's no regulations for that. There's no regulations as long as you don't use certain terms like organic. Sustainable is suddenly becoming a debatable term. At least there's lawsuits that are being filed against, against the terms. So would an eco-label protect you from those types of allegations? I don't know. Is there any, as you said, John, any consumers walking into a store saying, what do you got as long as it's MSC eco-labeled, I'll take it home. Nobody is doing that. You know, there's been a lot of, uh, I, I, you know, I, it's impossible to argue that you don't, that it's not a ticket to some uh, to some buyers and some retailers and some purchases, absolutely. If you are trying to get into certain buyers, you need to have one of those eco labels, uh, or increasingly be in a fisheries improvement product uh, project. Um, which you know those are that's a different kind of ball of wax there because fishery improvement product a project is exactly like it sounds. It's it's working on improving it. So it's not a certification per se, but you know I wonder too. So these these fisheries and farms they go through the process. I wrote about this in a column this week, um, and already you know gotten flack from from both sides as one should when you write a commentary. Um, but 
my argument was, uh, or at least the question I raised was, should eco labels be defending the fisheries and farms they certify more vehemently? And this this has kind of coincided with this launch uh, of the campaigns you mentioned, John, the ASC and BAP campaigns in the in the U.S. Because one of the things that, um, as we've been speaking about, one of the things that's important to note is people are not buying certified fish. They're buying fish. They feel like, hey, I want cod tonight. I want fish fingers tonight, whatever it might be. Um, but they're not buying uh, a particular certification label. Um, and so really the label is the one that's getting the benefit of the species, not the other way around. And so there is a, you know, uh, there's a debt of sorts that I think these eco-labels uh, do have to the fisheries that go through the process of uh, getting certified, especially given the fact that, that the ones that do get certified uh, oftentimes have to change, or at least some of them have to change their practices. So they have to invest in that and they have to lobby politicians to allow for these changes. It's not simple. So, you know, that we, we've heard this so many times over the years, John, from certified fisheries. Um, the MSC is in this weird position. It has NGOs to answer to. It has, you know, less funders than it used to, but it has funders and supporters that are in the, uh, in the foundation community that are much more focused on uh, conservation than necessarily on um, sustainable uh, extraction. Um, but, you know, we've heard it so many times from the Alaska pollock fishery, Alaska salmon fishery, to uh, Icelandic cod, Norwegian cod, all of these groups that have been involved in getting eco-labels. They've all said, wait a minute, the WWF or whoever it might be, I'm talking old days now, uh, Greenpeace, you know, have, have hung a banner in front of, you know, XYZ retail store or whatever. Um, and the MSC didn't really say much. Um, and I think it did change. The MSC began to be more receptive to their clients um, over the years. But at the same time, I think the lobster is a good example where, yes, there was a statement issued, but it was it was really tame. And I think the lobster uh, industry felt, uh, hey, wait a minute, you're basically kind of pushing off the responsibility onto the certifier and saying, hey, we don't know, we've got a standard, the fishery certified to the standard, you know, beyond that, we don't really, we don't really know. Um, so it is, you know, there, there is uh, going to be auditing to look into it, um, the, the, uh, the, the whale issue. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know, it, it just seems to me that there could and should have been more support for the fisheries rather than just the eco-label itself. Yeah, I I see the difficulty these groups are in when it comes to that. But I, I in in theory, I agree they they should at least go out and throw some you know some support uh, at, at these fisheries. The other thing that you know why why do we continue to make seafood so complicated to buy? I mean, when I go to the grocery store, I assume that the uh, Kroger uh, seafood guys 
not selling me black market seafood that you know is <laughs> is unsustainable i i just assume what's in that case is good and you know consumers we don't have to beat this horse again but consumers just they're still befuddled by seafood i don't know how but they are and you look at the current numbers retail numbers in particular and they're not good and they're getting worse and you know one more hurdle to you know go in and explain oh this label means everything nah no i i I I don't know. I think the whole thing is coming to a head here because it just seems, you know, the label was always, it always worked at the wholesale level because buyers needed it to protect themselves against claims that they their products weren't sustainable. So they glommed onto these labels like they were insurance policies to protect themselves. And that's why they are where they are now. But I, I I think the whole process has to go through a, a rethink, and um, I I think the the time is coming for it. To to argue against my own my own point, uh, which I'm allowed to do, um, you know, I spoke with Andrew Malson of of Fish Think, and he was formerly with the MSC uh, and uh, GSA as well, so he's got a long experience with eco labels, and he he made interesting points about. Uh, the confusion about eco certification groups roles versus uh, versus advocacy groups or kind of environmental NGOs like Seafood Watch, for example, um, you know, and, and he said there is this constant expectation that fisheries will get this kind of support that we're talking about, but that, you know, there 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 truly is no place for a certification group to be to to advocate for the fishery and, and be unbiased um i can see his point i think that uh i think that if you look at which eco labels are, are sort of working a little harder on that front um you see the gsa um coming to the, the defense of some of its uh, fisheries recently the uh uh, Gorton's, the, uh, the frozen fish processor uh, here in the United States, uh, was accused by a group or a suit was brought against, uh, against uh, Gorton's for its usage of the term sustainable on some tilapia that it was purchasing. The tilapia was certified to the Global Seafood Alliance's uh, BAP program. And so the Global Seafood Alliance uh, filed a support brief uh, in that case to say, hey, you know what, here's, here's information about how our program works and what it means to be certified. So GSA has done that. ASC, uh, when British Columbia farmed salmon, was put in a similarly strange position by the Seafood Watch uh, program. Uh, they had to come out and clarify as well and say, well, wait a minute, um, despite Seafood Watch saying to avoid, Seafood Watch also says any, uh, any ASC salmon is fine. So this is highly, highly complex. And like you said, I don't, I don't think ultimately that, that, uh, that the Monterey Bay Aquarium is going to achieve its goals by confusing people. Because ultimately it becomes kind of noise after a while, just becomes labels. I mean, you know, 
branding is obviously uh, important in uh, in a consumer uh, environment, but at the same time, uh, trying to launch too many logos and names and brands and get consumers to actually relate to any of them individually on their own, you know, I, I don't know that that's actually going to improve the sustainability of, uh, of these fisheries and farms, particularly, again, I will repeat, when uh, people just want to go in and buy the fish that they want to buy. And when I step into McDonald's or when I step into Tesco or Coop or wherever it is that I am around the world, I should already know that when I get in there, I need to assume that these major companies have their sustainability policies in order. And I think that's a fair expectation because otherwise, is it really up to the consumer to go read every little bit and look at their seafood watch card and reference it in that way? No, it's really not. So the focus being turned, as you said, John, on the B2B side, uh, you know, on maybe the education side, on uh, fish counters and uh, on, um, you know, restaurants, giving them resources for that, that might make more sense. But as of now, um, it does feel like we're kind of back in an, in an era of confusion again. Yeah, it really does. Uh, and like I said, and that's what I said earlier, I think it, it's something's coming to a head here, maybe not tomorrow, but, um, you know, in, in the near term, because when, when we wrote those stories this week and I put some, some of them on LinkedIn, I got, you know, I got a pretty good stream of emails, personal emails that were, you know, saying, yeah, we're just sick of it. It's costing so much. It's so, it's getting confusing. Uh, you know, all those things you just rattled off. So, the buyers, you know, forget about the consumers because shit, they don't know any any of these labels. I don't care what anybody says, but um, the buyers are, you know, they've had it. They're tired of it, and that is the market for these labels. That's the only market for these labels, as far as I can tell. So we'll see. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, we are always on interfish.com. You can find our news there 24-7. You can sign up for newsletters there. Just click on the little menu there on the right-hand side. Uh, drop down and you can pick from, uh, from any number of newsletters. I want to highlight one, our new shrimp newsletter, uh, that's going to uh, help you keep on top of the quick quick, fast-growing shrimp industry. It's been growing for a long, long time, but there's a lot happening in the sector, and uh, and we're keeping uh, an even closer tab on it, so we've launched that shrimp newsletter to keep you, uh, keep you informed there. And with that, we'll speak to you next time.